So um, we find in the Talmud uh, different kinds of narrative, different kinds of discussions. The vast majority of the Talmud is comprised of what's called halacha. And we know what the word halacha means. Halacha means, uh, we think of it as observance, but it means really law, Jewish law. So as an example, you'll have the laws of a sukkah. How do you have a kosher sukkah? We have sukkahs coming up in a few weeks. So how tall can the sukkah be? How wide can it be? What, what's, what, can, what materials are you going to use to build the walls? And what materials can you use the schach? And what, what, what renders a lulav kosher or unkosher? What renders an etrog kosher or unkosher? Right? That is, if the majority of the Talmud deals with things like that. Right? And it, its its approach is always to try to get very granular. It would deal with hypotheticals. Means it's trying to get the core idea of a law and all the uh, all the associated laws. So it you know deals specifically with trying to reveal the law of the Torah in a way that you can answer any question you potentially have. Thus, the dynamic nature of the Torah, wherein even if you invent new technology, so the Talmud doesn't say anything about electricity because it wasn't really harnessed at that time. But we have the principles, the immutable principles of the Torah in the Talmud, and therefore the application is, uh, you know, is, is the skill that's needed to apply the principle to the new scenario, which makes it a very, very interesting, uh, um, um, a very interesting uh, a challenge. Either way, there's an entirely different um, uh, kind or narrative of the Talmud, which is called Agadita or Agadic. And that comes from the word like Haggadah, like telling over stories, like the Haggadah we say in Pesach. And that is entirely different. If you guys like study Talmud, and you just study like 25 pages of Talmud, of Halacha, and then you get to one page of Agadita, and you'll be like, this is a different book. This is entirely different. This was a different author or different authors. Because it, it, it's, it's suddenly you're in, you're in a different world. And the world is like, suddenly it's not everything's black and white. You're dealing with stories. You're dealing with parables. You're dealing with philosophy. You're dealing with ethics. You're dealing with theology. You're dealing with these things that are, seem very murky. And you see stories that seem to be supernatural or metaphysical. And you're not talking about Midrash? Well, Midrash had a lot of agarita. There's a very nice overlap between a lot of midrash. A lot of midrash, not most midrash, uh, is more agadic than halachic. Midrash. No, agadic. Agadic. Like agadata. It's a, not a word. That okay. Yeah, otherwise. Transfers well. So you've seen like a lot of a lot of weird science fiction that you would call. You would say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, the Talmud asks, where does the sun go at night? Oh, uh, well, why does it go to the west, not the east? Well, why does it just stop and extinguish halfway through this? Like these are not real questions, obviously. Uh, uh, you know, from an astronomy perspective. These are more like, well, what does the sun represent and what does it mean? You know? And this is obviously much, much harder to learn because the intention of the authors is deliberately concealed. So while the halacha uh, portion of the Talmud, it's, it's the, every effort is extended to try to make it revealed by asking all the questions and analyzing and proving and sourcing and everything... When you get to when you turn the page, you're in Agarata, It's everything is it's clearly intended to be concealed. Now the question is why? That's a very good question, and and how is that at least concealed? So what I want to do today here is give you guys an example of this kind of Talmud, which is a very very intriguing piece of Talmud, and you'll we'll read it and I'll be like, that doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and we'll try to kind of build it and demonstrate kind of the wisdom that's all buried beneath the surface. 
Um, so, for example, you might have a Talmud that says something in a Gaia Talmud. It says something, and you have no, and you read this like this is a, this is not, this is, doesn't tell me anything. And the truth is, is that this is only one part of the lesson. So the rabbis were really smart. They wanted, they wanted the Agadata to be, to be there, but hidden. Hidden in plain sight, so to speak. So how would you hide things in plain sight? How would you want to, if you want to send over a message to your fellow, to your friend uh, in a war zone, you want to you encrypt it. How do you encrypt Talmud? You code it. So either you code it, or what you do is you... Um, you take it and split it into four different parts and put one in every corner of the Talmud. And unless someone is a truly Talmud scholar and you collect all the puzzle pieces, you'll have no idea. Because you, you, you approach one piece of Talmud and you have no idea that this is only part of a bigger picture. Are you talking about four parts of the entire Talmud? Oh, yeah. Everything oh, yeah. So, so like, wow. so like if, if, if you, or, you and I were reading the Talmud, we get to a small piece of Agarita, we might have no clue what, that actually, what the lesson is actually being imparted because we only got one slice of the pie. And you want to see the whole picture, it's like if you take a little, little, little uh, uh, puzzle piece out of a 5,000-piece puzzle, and you say, what's the picture about? You have no idea. You know, is it a boat? Is it scenery? Is it, is it a building? Is it animals? You have no idea. How could you possibly know? Well, why, Rabbi, why would they do that? Mm, that's a very good question. One of, the, one of the best questions of all time, I think. Why would they want to do that? <laughs> so I, I think my answer that I've always given is that the Talmud or the ethical and philosophical insights of the Torah are not necessarily designed for everyone. Mm-hmm. means the Torah wants to say things to Torah scholars. means some things it wants to say to everyone, halacha, everyone got to know yeah. the law. Yeah. But some things are, as you move up in your growth, you will understand more. So just like we don't, you know, everyone's heard of the idea, you don't teach Kabbalah to, to, in kindergarten. Well, why not? Of course, let them grow up and let them have a little bit more of a firm basis, and then they, when they, when they're ready for it, then 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 they'll they'll get it and understand it. Uh, when we're ready for agarata, we'll understand more and more. So it's designed deliberately, deliberately designed that not everyone should be able to uh, uh, to understand it at face value, uh, or not at face value, or at first sight. Okay, so. Uh, you know, I always used to say that, like, the Talmud doesn't dispense, dispense wisdom like gumballs. Some of the deepest ideas and all of, you know, all of, all, the, all of Jewish wisdom are included in the God that's in the Talmud. It doesn't want to just throw it out, splurt it all out. It wants to make people who are deserved of understanding these kind of insights, they get it. Other people have no idea. Just go straight over their heads. And by the way, what happens when things go straight over your heads? What's the danger? Well, not only that, you do want to listen, but what happens when someone, something goes straight over someone's head, but they don't realize that it went over their head? What happens then? You misinterpret everything. That's right. What happens then? You might come to the <laughs> you, you, you come to, not only you don't get it, but you say something entirely different than what's intended. Which, you know, it's, just, it's the irony. It's the fact that, you know, Someone did not get the message, did not get the lesson. They think they get the lesson, and then they pervert or corrupt the teaching because they really didn't understand it. And Maimonides, by the way, Maimonides, he has a whole essay on this, on how we're supposed to study Agatha. And he says that there's a lot of people that they, that it's so bad they should never study Agatha. 
They shouldn't study. It's better off not to study because you'll study it and you don't get it, but you think you get it. And you think that the great sages of the Talmud are on your level. Therefore, you are, whatever you understand, you know, that, that's what they meant. And then you, 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 you know, it's a total defilement of everything that's holy. Well, how would people that aren't like you and your brother and, and those people that go to yeshiva and learn, how would they know? But they wouldn't. That's the point. That, that was, that's the way it was designed. They're so not. They're, we wouldn't. We well, wouldn't. now we're going to make, we're going to give you guys a little taste of it. Okay. 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 Yeah. I don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> well, you don't even know how to spell it. And, and you know what? The Talmud doesn't label what's what. Doesn't it doesn't have yeah, labels. Oh, there's a garata. Yeah. 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 yeah um, you, you know you you may you may um, w- once you get a feeling for Talmud, if you actually do a lot of study of it, you'll be able to know where we're moving into agarata. Um, but my grandfather had, a, by the way, a, a method that he that he employs, just to give you kind of the scope of what we're talking about, uh, a method of how to understand agarata. And my grandfather was an incredible, incredible sage. You know, me and my brother, he puts us in his back pocket like nothing. Okay? Now, that's an understatement. A huge understatement. Um, he would say that the way he approaches agaratas is that you take the agarata, whatever the statement may be, and then you kind of live with it. And you let the idea percolate within you for months and months. Imagine thinking about a small line of Talmud for months and months. It kind of germinates on, on, on its own and develops into something really dramatic and sensational and incredible over time. So if you kind of live with an idea, uh, or at least an enigma even, you live with an enigma and eventually the enigma comes, becomes clear. So I'm going to give you guys a little example. This is the one that I want to talk about today. And this is from the Talmud, Talmud in Brachos. Brachos is the first chap- first book of the Talmud. It deals primarily with the laws of brachos. Brachos means blessings. So blessings of the Hamotzi, and blessings of all the different six, six blessings for six different food categories. Uh, then you have the after blessings, three different kinds of after blessings, blessings for natural, you know, natural um, uh, occurrences like the lightning and thunder. Or what do you do? Is there there's a special blessing when you see a Jewish teen or even a secular teen, a non-Jewish teen? Uh, there's a blessing that you say when you see a rainbow, right? Oh, these blessings, these are primarily with laws of blessing. Uh, and then it says as follows. It says, three things are a measure of the world to come. Now, what does it mean a measure of the world to come? It means it's, world to come is this idea that we've heard of, perhaps. Um, what it exactly is, where it is, how we get there, what is exactly uh, the qualities, the core qualities of this uh, locale is a little bit of a mystery, for I think, for most people. Um, this is one of the sources that talk about it. Uh, and thus, it's going to convey to us something about it. And it says, Olam Haba, it says, Olam Haba is some other world. It's not this world. Uh, but when it says something is a measure of the world to come, what it means is that there are three things that are a little bit like the world to come. In a small way, small measure, like 1% or 5% or a half a percent. Some similarity, some commonality between these things and the world to come. Okay? And what are they? Number one, Shabbos. Number two, Shemesh means the sun. And number three, Tashmish. Now the word Tashmish, it's not clear what it means. So the Gemara has a question. Uh, what does Tashmish mean? Now because Tashmish is an ambiguous word. Right? There's multiple meanings for the word Tashmish. And therefore the Gemara says, well, there's three things that are measured measure of the world to come. Shabbos, Shemesh, and Tashmish. Right? Shabbos, the sun, and Tashmish. Well, what does Tashmish mean? It has multiple meanings. Right? Um, one of the meanings is, is sexual intercourse. That's one of the meanings of Tashmish. Um, 
Another one of the meanings is going to the bathroom, removing one's bowels. Both of them have the, have the same word. One's Tashmish Hamita, and one's Tashmish Nikavim. So the, so, so the Gemara said only one word, Tashmish. didn't tell you which Tashmish was. Tashmish Hamita, Tashmish <coughs> So the Gemara says, which Tashmish are you referring to? If you say it means Tashmish Hamita, sexual intercourse, it makes someone weak. Right? It weakens someone. Rather, it must mean going to the bathroom, relieving one's bowels. That's where the Gemara starts. That's where it ends. That's it. That's all we have of that. And when I first read this, this was seems very bizarre. Like we're talking about Lamaba, this ultimate destiny of the Jewish people, all of Israel's apportionment will to come. It's like the highlight of of uh, or, or the, the the ultimate uh, conclusion, the apex of existence for a human is to reach a Lamaba. And there are three things that are like a Lamaba. Shabbos, okay, Shabbos, I guess is a certain degree of pleasure. It's it's a certain bliss, it's a mitzvah, whatever. I could hear the sun is really nice, really wonderful, Warm-ish. really warm. And then it says Tashmish, and it's like, it throws you into this disarray. Well, what, what is it? Re- like, Mara has a whole question. What's it referring to? You know, um, is it referring to this kind of Tashmish or that kind of Tashmish? It says, well, this kind it cannot mean because it made someone weak. Well, what must be this kind? What is going on over here? Uh, what's the world to come? What about these things are similar to the world to come, what does it even mean that something is similar to the world to come? What does that even mean? And how are these things representative of any way the world to come? Uh, and lastly, uh, this is, I think, well, two more questions, but like, going to the bathroom, really? That's that's this wonderful pleasure that's unmatched by anything? Alamabath, this great destiny, is like, how do we want to know what measure of it is going to the bathroom? You know, some people say, well, don't take that for granted, of course. Okay, but, you know, in the scheme of life, you know, we, that's, not, that's not like the big, you know, the big yeah. excitements that we have. You know, it's, it's, it's nice, it's, uh, it's convenient, it's fantastic, it's, it's wonderful, you know. But it's it, better than not going. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> especially for men. Yeah, especially for men. Yeah. So, um, and, and lastly, another, another great question that I, that I think we have to ask on this Talmud Talmud's saying three things are measurable to come. Right? That's what it says. And it says this, this, and that. Correct? Three things. Shabbos, Shemesh, and Tashmish. Now, the Gemara obviously knew that the word Tashmish is not a complete item. Why? Because it's the beginning of, it's either Tashmish Hamita or Tashmish Tashmish. It's like a half word. It's like a half a word. Half a word yeah. So the Gemara is saying three things. And then it says, one, two, and I'll tell you half, half of the other, th- the third. Just tell me, is it say Tashmish Amit or Tashmish Kavan? I would know. And when it says, oh, Tashmish, which Tashmish do you refer to? Do you mean it's an intercourse? Well, then it makes some weak. No, it must be going to the bathroom. Just say what it is. Simplify it. Say Tashmish going to the bathroom. That's it. That's what it should have said. No. Why does it have to kind of yank our chain, so to speak, to say, oh, Tashmish, I'm not going to tell you which one. Mm, which one am I talking about? You don't know. Oh, you'll ask me? Okay, well, let's examine it. Is it this? Can it be this? Maybe it must be that. Just, just tell me. Three things in the world will come. Shabbos, Shemesh, and Tashmish the Kavim, right? Shabbos, the sun, going to the bathroom. That, that's it. Close the Gemara. Where it says, Tashmish? Oh, what does Tashmish mean? Tashmish is only half a word. Wait, is it this? No, it can't be this. It must be that. It doesn't seem like a good way to, to you know, what kind of lesson is that? So we have like five or six questions here. What do you guys say? So is, is this intriguing? If you would read this, you know, you could read this. By the way, this Gemara is one of like a hundred on the same page that are perhaps equally as perplexing. 
just give you a scope of, 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 the, of, of how much content there is here and how much room for, for scholarship there is here. Like this one line that we're going to spend at least you know, another 40 minutes talking about, this one line is it's only it's like maybe two lines out of 70 lines. And every, every two lines is another thing that made you like say, oh, the, same, the very same page. Like uh, 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 sleep is one-sixtieth of death. What? What's death? What's sleep? Right? How are they? You know, we relate. That's the same page. Same page. And it's obviously, you know, the question that we have to ask is, okay, well, if this is what it, you know, purports uh, to me to be, it's something obviously very insightful. But this was included in the finalized text of the Talmud. This is an eternal lesson for all of the Jewish people forever. There's something very important here, and we read it, there's a lot of obvious questions. A lot of things that seem also bizarre, like, where'd this come from? Like, if you ask me, hey, what are the three things that we're world to come? I would say, I don't know, having uh, nachas from your kids, going to Israel, and studying Torah. That would make sense, or something like that, you know? And here it says, Shabbos, the sun, and Tashmish. Well, what's Tashmish? You know, what is going on over here? You know, this like, and this is the kind. And I'll tell you, guys, a little, little personally, for me, when I was studying this, I spent a few months really grappling with this particular line of Talmud, because there were so many obvious questions, and I was working with the assumption that there's something incredibly, incredibly deep going on over here. Clearly, it's concealed, it's hidden, <laughs> it's buried under whatever you know facade of this. Very enigmatic statement. This comes from the writer, though, does it not? Well, it's not inspired by anything. This, this, um, this, this thing that you're talking about. What do you Nobody. Mean? Insp- I mean, it's written. The rabbis got together, right, and they had differing opinions on almost well, everything. Well, not, not with Agarata. There's no differing opinions on Agarata. Very important, important to mention. There's never any okay, but then where did, where did this come from? So this, this is what idea. we call this idea. Is that's very good. Yeah, this is part of the oral Torah. Okay. There's an oral tradition. Now, it's possible that the rabbi's present, presentation, mm-hmm. they were the geniuses behind the presentation, but the ideas are the ideas of Moses and God. You know, Moses gave us the ideas from God. That, that, you know, that's what the Jewish people have always believed. So you, we, we believe that Moses, oh. this is a Moses idea? Oh, absolutely. Idea? This is called oral Torah. And this is straight, okay. straight from God. And, and we're telling us what Lama Ba is. And however, when the rabbis decided to write it down to actually... Put pen to paper. They wrote it down in a way that if most people read it, ninety nine point nine percent of people read it, it'll just go yeah. straight over their head. Oh yeah. They'll say, "Oh, Allah, I know what it is." You go to the bathroom on Shabbat in the sun. You got it. <laughs> you know. And or people say that, like, Lincoln, like yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that is the ultimate pleasure someone could possibly have, and that's the measure of the world to come. That's what you would think if you just read it like that. When you have the, you know, the, the sensitivity, the sensibilities to understand what is actually going on over here and what is being conveyed, then you realize something a little bit more deeper is the going Talmud on there. The was finished when? 500 years after the Common Era, so 1,500 years ago. 1,500 years this, ago. This, the Babylonian. The Babylonian Talmud. So when we say Talmud, we generally mean the Babylonian Talmud. There, are, there is a Jerusalem Talmud. Um, and this is about 1,500. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's right. But the the idea is is an idea that they didn't make up on their own. 
Uh, we'll see exactly how this idea, how incredible this, this idea or collection of ideas is. Um, so let me, let's go through some, some background here. So what, what's the idea of Alam Haba? Just roughly, just whatever we found from the sources. Uh, because we could talk about that. We could make a seven-part session on Alam Haba and really discuss it you know, in great detail, Every, all the sources that we have. Um, so put simply, the way Maimonides puts it, it's a world of souls. It's a world where the soul is the center and the body is, if, if you have a body, it's a whole question, is there a body, is there not a body? It's a little bit unclear, uh, but it's, 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 it's the kind of the opposite, where the, it's the soul first and body second. And the Talmud says it in, as, in such a way. It says, in the world to come, there's no eating, no drinking, no washing, no anointing, no sexual intercourse. Rather, the righteous sit with crowns in their heads, enjoying the radiance of the divine presence, the Shekhinah. What it says is that there's all the things that we equate with life over here, eating, drinking, washing, anointing, sexual intercourse, none of that in the world to come. So what is it? It's righteous people. So it's, it's, so it's, not, it's not everyone. In this world, we have everyone. Righteous people, wicked people, moderate people, really bad people, really fantastic people. We have, we have, a, you know, we have a mix. The world to come, it's just the righteous, and they have crowns in their heads. What does that mean? Good question. In, not on. It doesn't say on. In. It says in. It's very interesting. Yeah. Most people say, because uh, yeah. in Hebrew you can kind of pass it along, but it does say in. And it's also very interesting. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Good thing for Dennis put them there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's crowns on, the, on some of the letters, too. He's not talking about those. I have no idea he what he's talking be. about. I have no idea, to be honest with you. I have no idea what he's talking about. And I think that if we wanted to investigate this, this tomorrow and spend a few months with this tomorrow, we probably get some more insight. You know what I mean by crowns in the letters? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. And what what crowns? We know that crown. The idea of a crown comes up a lot in Jewish sources. There's yeah. the crowns that they got at Mount Sinai, right? When they said Nasa and Ishmael, they got two crowns, and right. they they sinned the golden calf. They lost those crowns, and and then they'll get the crowns back. So crowns is something that is clearly linked to this other state of being, like. People, people by Mount Sinai. Well, then they had prophecy. What does prophecy mean? How do you get prophecy? Well, you expose the soul. Maybe that's a measure of the world to come because it's soul first, body second. Thus, there's the crowns. Like something like that. Like, like that's piecing together a few pieces of Talmud by saying, hey, there's crowns in Lama Ba. There were crowns by, uh, by Mount Sinai experience. Well, maybe when the Jewish people were at Mount Sinai, at the Mount Sinai experience, when they had the prophecy, and prophecy is a communication of God to human, but, but which part of the human gets communication from God? Anyone knows? Which part of the human gets communication from God? Is it body or soul? It's a soul. A soul. Well, how are the Jewish people able to have communication with God? Because they were soul first, body second. So maybe the Jewish people at Mount Sinai were in the level of a Lama Ba, and therefore they had this dark crowns. And that, ooh, suddenly this, this, we're connecting some ideas here together, Right? Well, either way, that's the first thing we know about Lama Ba. Place that there's no eating, no drinking, no wa- no standing, no sitting, no washing, no, no anointing, no intercourse. Just righteous sit with the crowns on their heads, enjoying the, enjoying the glory of God. Okay. Now, we have a very um, interesting sentence here from Maimonides. And he tells us that for us humans, thinking about Lama Ba or trying to imagine it, us or humanity in the state of Lama Ba is impossible. And he says as follows. And I'll read it really quickly. You should know, by the way, Maimonides has an entire treatise on Lama Ba. So most of the, of the sources um, that he brings over there. Um, he has an entire introduction, very, very long, fantastic 
definitely interesting introduction on Alamaba and the whole idea of reward and punishment and where it comes from and what, what should be the motivation for someone's behavior what about altruism what about Lishma why are we doing what we're doing uh, what is this end goal what, what does Mashiach mean what does what does reviving the dead what does Ganeda mean all these questions that kind of get mumble jumbled together in our brains Maimonides goes through one by one what it means and what it doesn't mean well, you should do a bunch of classes on that then well, there you go. So let's... Uh, <laughs> More classes. <laughs> he says as follows. Class, yeah. but why that, why uh, uh, no, it isn't. Well, the crown's a Gemara, so it's not... Uh, you don't have to... But what maybe the meaning behind yeah. it is, is what you have to do. Either way, he says as follows. Just like a, a blind man cannot imagine color... And a deaf person cannot experience sounds. So too, bodies cannot attain spiritual pleasures. That's what Maimonides writes. He says, you want to explain to a blind person what green looks like? You say, you can't do it. What words are you going to use? How are you going to describe it? Say, oh, grass is green. You've never seen grass. Unless you have the experience of color, you have no way of defining it. Unless you've experienced spiritual pleasure, you have no way of defining it. There's no other point of reference. There's nothing that we can say physically that would equate to description of the spiritual. There's no overlap. Explain green. How can you explain green without calling upon a common point in reference? You can't. There's no overlap. You can't say, oh, it's a lot of X, because it's not a lot of X. It's something entirely different. So too, body and soul, physical and spiritual, this world and next world, entirely different. Now, yes, we'll hold off on that thought here. That's, let, let's take that as a, as a core inside what Alam Abba is. Alam Abba is this place of souls and souls' pleasures. And for us, do you want to talk, describe it to us? You're describing to a blind person what color is. So when Aragamara tells us this very cryptic Talmudic statement tells us that there's three things, even though we, we can't really understand Alamaba. We can't. We're, we're blind vis-a-vis Alamaba. And we can't be explained. However, the Gemara says that there's three things that are in some way similar, that have some overlap to Alamaba, that share a characteristic with Alamaba. That's what the Gemara is saying. But how do they know what, that these three things are similar to it if they have no way of imagining what it is? Well, okay. So... Okay, it's a good question. It's a so, I, I think the simplest answer is the fact that they have tradition. And but I think the more complex answer is the fact that even though you cannot really understand what something is, you can understand that it exists. It means you could talk to a blind person and say, you know, what's the difference between red and green, and they might be able to talk about it. It's still something they can't imagine, they can't conceptualize. They don't really know what it is. But they can say, hey, green's a little more luscious, red is a little fiery or a little bit louder. Yeah, that's because somebody who can see has told them this. Oh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my point. nobody can tell them what the world to come is like. That's about, true, that's true. But the prophecy? Gem- what about through prophecy? Well, that's, that, that's like what I said till now. This is not that the rabbis made up on their own. This is part of the, of, of the corpus of, of the oral Torah that has been, has been part of the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, um, collection of, of philosophy since the times so, of Moses. So, so this was handed down to them from Moses who got it from God, so that's, 
and God knows exactly. what it's like. Exactly, exactly. And by the way, the, the, the verse, verses don't ever mention the Lama explicitly. They mention it, uh, you know, they reference it, but they reference it in, you know, in a side way. But the verses never mention the Lama And the reason is because the Torah makes a lot of predictions. It makes a lot of projections. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't, however, it does not, does not do things that cannot be falsified. Means the, the Torah says, "Hey, you, if you mis- misbehave, you get kicked out of Israel." Well, that we see, we misbehave, we got kicked out of Israel. Yeah. Right. However, the Torah could have very easily said, "You know what? If you don't observe a Torah after you die, you get burned and you get tortured." Yes. Doesn't do that. Why doesn't do that? Even if it may be true to some degree, why is it mentioned Lama Ba? Oh, this great pleasures of Lama Ba. Because these are things that are you could very much artificially use to try to inspire observance. Dante didn't write the Torah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the Torah doesn't want to do that. The Torah wants, uh, by design, for people to have the option of not believing and not being forced to believe due to this terror of, of not accepting that that's going to be, you know, outside of this realm of existence. Either way, let's start one by one. Let's start Shabbos. Let's find some commonalities between Shabbos and Olam Haba. Connection. Huh? Connection to your soul. Yeah. Connection to God. It's, it's, it's about connection, connection to God, isn't it? Okay. I mean, well, you know, you people study on Shabbos, right? You learn. Yeah, but Torah is also about connection mm-hmm. to God. Prayer is also mm-hmm. about connection to God. What's unique about Shabbos? You don't. Well, want. you don't think about things. You don't. Everyday you don't, you things don't different from your everyday. Yeah. It's different. You don't think about everyday things. You don't work. You don't. It's more spiritual. No. You don't okay, but a lot of things are spiritual. I came, up, I came up with four different overlaps between the Shabbos and the Mabah. Okay. Well, first of all, let's start like this. Wait, how many days of the week are there? Seven. Seven. Seven, right? And how many days are not Shabbos? Six. Six and one. The Gemara says that the world is 6,000 years. And then it talks about this last, the 7,000th, that's this other, other realm. Um, thus, the idea, this is just as an introduction, this is like the simplest way to dig your toe into this, the idea of six days of this world and then one day of the next world that parallels 6,000 years of this world to 1,000 years of the next world. Let's just hold that thought again. That's a thought out there. Let's just put that aside. Now let's go a little deeper. Olam How many mitzvahs could you do Olam every day? Do you know? How many mitzvahs? Yeah. Can't do any, can you? Zero. Zero, yeah. How many mitzvahs can you do in this world? As many as you can. Yeah. Right. <laughs> How much reward do we get for mitzvahs in this world? None. None. And next world is all about reward. Thus, the, the relationship between the two worlds is that here is about working, preparing, acquiring, and the next world is about consuming, about enjoying it. The Gemara says, listen to this. Listen to this Gemara. Gemara says, he who toils... Before Shabbos, eats on Shabbos. However, he who does not toil before Shabbos, what's he going to eat on Shabbos? We know that the laws of Shabbat say that you can't cook on Shabbos. So before Shabbos is all about preparing for Shabbos. And then once Shabbos, once the the clock strikes Shabbos, what happens? You switch from preparing mode to consuming mode. Olam Hazed, this world, is all about preparation. Preparation for what? For Lama Ba. 
And now one of is the, is, is the idea of consumption. The, the, the verse, the Mishnah says that this world compared to the next world is like a corridor before a hole. Like when you walk through, you know, through like a banquet, a banquet hall, you walk, you're, you're, walk, you're preparing towards something, right? You're approaching something. And that's the connection between this world and the next world, says the Gemara. And thus, you know, what, what, what's Friday? It's preparing for Shabbat. It's approaching Shabbat. Right? What's Shabbat? It's, it's enjoying, consuming that that you prepared on Friday. Mm-hmm. Thus, if you want to know a little bit of the feeling of what it's like to transition from mode of work to mode of consumption, you look at Shabbat. And Shabbat is a little bit of a microcosm of Olam bias. Just like we have this rhythm that, you know, that we're working, we're working the whole week, and then Friday you hit this fever pitch. And the fever pitch, you got to prepare the challah, you got to prepare the wine, you got to light the candles, you right? Everything, everything done, Shabbat. Shabbos, stop. Now you're enjoying. Now you're consuming. That is a little bit, a small measure of what Olam bias. This life, we're here running, we're working with, with the kids, we're doing all, trying to do as many missions as we can, trying to study as much Torah as we can, trying to accomplish as much kindness as we can. And then we, 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 you know, we, that's it. We're not no longer in this world. Boom, we get in the next world. Now, now we are what we have prepared. We were, now it's time to consume that that we prepared. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, like, okay, whoa, this is already an insight. This is, a, this is something... Dramatic, you know? And especially the fact that the Talmud elsewhere makes this connection between Lama Zeh and Lama Ba versus before Shabbat and after Shabbat. That's one thought. Let's talk about another, short, another thought here. What do, Maimonides, what do the Maimonides tell us about Lama Ba? Right? How do we understand? Like, how, are we going to, how are we going to uh, relate it? We really can't, right? Unless you've experienced it. Unless you've experienced it, you can't really understand it. It's just weird thing. There's no word to describe it once you've been there. And you can't be there. And you be can't be there. Mm-hmm. Perhaps mm-hmm. when we talk about Shabbos, Shabbos, describe Shabbos. Okay, it's 26 hours, 25 hours, you don't do any creative work. Doesn't sound so inspiring. Really? That's what it's all about? And you can't really talk to someone about Shabbos unless they've actually experienced it. Unless they've experienced it, there's no point of reference. And in fact, the Gemara even says it. There's another Gemara that I found that says the Gemara says that this is a great story uh, about the Caesar came to one of the rabbis and said, "How come the Shabbat food always smells so delicious?" Yeah. He says, well, we, have a, "We have a special spice called Shabbos." He's like, "Okay, I want to give you some of the spice." He's like, "I can't unless you observe Shabbos, unless you have Shabbos, right? Then you have the spice. Otherwise, you don't have the spice." So I was thinking that maybe this is another overlap, that Shabbos as well is this idea of a mitzvah that works the opposite way. You know, typically we understand things and then we do it. We have this, this the, the, the approach of, you know, we're a very cerebral religion and therefore we don't just do things that are outrageous. Right? We understand it, it makes sense, and we do it. And before we do it, we understand it. Yet Shabbos, if I would tell, tell you, like, this is what it's, if I just define Shabbos for you, and you've actually never experienced, you've never experienced a Shabbos meal, you've never experienced, uh, you know, the Shabbos atmosphere, well, then, to you, it sounds insane. Like, what, what is this? 
you know. But it's a certain spiritual quality to it, and therefore it's not definable. The pleasure of Shabbos is spiritual, and therefore, unless you've experienced it, there's no there's no point of reference. Lama ba, same thing. There's some overlap. There's some commonality between Shabbos and Lama um, Like this, a third a third reason. Very interesting idea here. So he said, in this world, we're body first, soul second. Next world, we're soul first. And there's even a question if we even have a body. Maybe we have a body, we just don't need to tend to it, or we don't have a body at all. We don't stand, we don't sit, etc. Um, what is the downside of not having, of being body first and soul second? What's the downside from a spiritual perspective? From a Torah perspective. The downside of having body first? Well, you have you have the Yetzirah that you're always having to, to battle with. So you're always having a battle, right? I mean, okay. there's always, always challenges and battles because of the Yetzirah. That would be one thing, right? Okay, but let's extend this to, let's say, a mitzvah, right? So we have a lot of mitzvahs. Now, the vast majority of mitzvahs are really hard for us to do. Why are mitzvahs hard to do? Our soul wants nothing more than to do as many mitzvahs as we as you possibly can. Problem is that our body's first, and our body's first in what we feel, and therefore, you know, pray three times a day. Oh, what a schlep, right? Don't forget to put your filling on every day, right? Don't give ten percent charity. Uh, all these things, and our body's protesting and it's fighting. And it doesn't resonate within us, you know, and we feel a little bit out of character. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever been in this position, but on the holiday of Sukkot, right? So we have this mitzvah. It says you take a branch and you take a few bunch of other branches and you take a, a lemon and you shake it. And I was once stopping, like in the middle of a, of a shul, and I'm looking at all these people. I'm like, I wonder what, like, what, what their coworkers would think if they saw them right now. What their what? what? Coworkers. Uh-huh. Like, you know, and is it, is it okay to feel strange doing a mitzvah? And why do we feel strange doing a mitzvah? You know why? Because our feelings are linked to our body. Our feelings are linked to the physical, and therefore something that's entirely spiritual, like shaking the lul of an estrog, our soul loves it. It's life-giving activities for our soul. But for our body, it's weird. It's bizarre. It's strange. It's, what is this, how, what, how does this in any way improve our life or anyone else's life? What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's what the body says. And this tension is the reason why we have our life has purpose. But it's also the reason why mitzvahs are so distant from us. You know? Uh, imagine if, if, you did, if, 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 if you needed, if you felt hungry if you didn't study Torah. Like right now, if you don't, if you don't really eat food for five hours, six hours, you start grumbling. Why? Because your feelings are linked to your body. Well, if your feelings were linked to your soul, then going five hours without Torah study would also make you hungry. And then you would die after two days of not studying Torah. Because the Torah is compared to water, the Torah is compared to food. Our problem in, in this world is that the mitzvahs are spiritual, and we are primarily physical, and therefore those two are constant clashing. What happens in Lama Ba? Lama Ba, it's the opposite. Our body doesn't matter. We don't need to eat. We don't need to drink. We don't need to sleep. There's no, there's no sexual intercourse. Not, nothing. Our body is, is not a player at all. And what's there? Just enjoying the pleasure of God. Just spiritual. It's the exact opposite. Tables have turned. And then spiritual activities 
in Olam Haba are entirely natural. And there, the equivalent of shaking the lulav, of course that makes sense. And you're totally in harmony and totally at peace with such an activity. Well, no, who's first of all, it's not so clear you don't have a body. You may have a body, or you may be able to do a, a spiritual, a soulful activity, which is the soul. Okay. Either way, if you want to know a little bit about what it's like in Lama Ba, right, you want to find a mitzvah that you feel totally at peace with. A mitzvah that you, that you don't feel like there's a clash between you and the mitzvah. Shabbos. Shabbos, you, know, you, you look at the Shabbos meal and you see mountains of great food. You see the delicious challah, sumptuous challah. And you know, you're drinking alcohol. You have delicious food, the singing, and you're like, your body is totally on board. Totally. And you want to just dig in. Mm-hmm. And whoa, dude, it's a mitzvah. Why are you suddenly digging into a mitzvah? Why is your body suddenly on board? Because Shabbos is immeasurable to come. Shabbos is, if you want to get a little bit of a feeling, what's it like for your soul when you do a mitzvah, right? It's a little bit, in a small way, similar to what your body does with Shabbos. Your body, you come into Shabbos, you're ravenously hungry. There's a special mitzvah to not eat food from Friday afternoon, from Friday mid- midday. So it's been six hours since you ate, you're starving. The food smells to high heaven. It's fantastic. And you come in, you see everyone's dressed all nice, and the table looks great, and there's flowers, and there's everything's beautiful, and you see the Shalom Aleichem, and you, you, you dig in. Right? You're totally on board. Your body's on board, your soul's on board. There's no friction at all with the mitzvah. That is a little bit of a measure of what to come. A little bit of the feeling of what's it like to be in Olamabah. Of what's it like to not have any resistance to doing spiritual activities. Thus, when it says Shabbos is a measure of what's to come, we have at least four reasons. There may be more reasons, but maybe four overlapped. But now we see from various ap- aspects of what, sh- of what Shabbos, we see what, we, we, we see what the lesson is. It makes a lot of sense. This is an incredibly deep insight. And it's, it's nuanced, and there's subtleties, and there's, you know, in, in, in so many different areas. We learn about Shabbos, we learn about Lama Ba, we learn about ourselves, we learn about the makeup of the, the body-soul relationship. Like, this is now a very valuable and insightful and Wonderful Talmudic teaching. What about the sun? Sun, light, and warmth. So I, you light and warmth. So I, I think that a good, like an easy way to tip our, dip our toe into this, a simple way to understand is that listen, a lot. This world is a world of obscurity, a world of darkness, so to speak. Why? Because what's really important, our soul, is ignored, which is it's just bizarre. It's people are doing, people are acting in such a silly way. Because they hear about their body, the body will be interned in the ground in 50 years, being eaten by maggots. Like, why are you investing so much time in the body? It seems insane, right? Uh, it's as if people are blind. And the soul is, is it turns around, in 100 million years, your soul will be around. You're going to invest in the body? It seems, it seems backwards. So it seems obscure. Alama Baz, well, there's clarity. Just like, just like the sun brings clarity. So to Lama Ba, it's clarity. We're, we're, we're the thought of Lama Ba, the idea of our soul continually existing forever, for eternity, that brings clarity. That's a very simple way to approach it. Uh, but we're going to go a little deeper here. What's unique about the sun? There's something that's very unique that only the sun has, a character that only the sun has. 
Well, I'm saying it's it's the, it's the center of our solar system. It's it, constant. It's, it's constant. I mean, it's the light in the right. Constant. It's light. It's wonderful light, right? Mm-hmm. What for us? Like, what about the sun is different than anything else that we encounter from our perspective in the world? So to me, like. Uh, Remember, this is where I st- This is where we started from. I'm, 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 we're doing this experience that took me like five months to do. So, um, what so you I understand noticed, why we're sitting here. Oh going, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we find like this: the sun, even though it's there, you cannot look at it. Not for too long. That's you right. can't. Yep. Why not? It's more. It's more than that. It's. It is coming with too much force than what you can handle. And then we find like this. Then I find a Talmud. The Talmud. Talmud seems to say. Remember, this is Talmud. These Talmuds are scattered throughout the Talmud. So if you didn't know these pieces, you didn't have these pieces of Talmud. These other pieces of the puzzle, you wouldn't wouldn't have no idea what this means. Talmud says as follows: Prophets only prophesize for the days of the Messiah, but with regards to the world to come, an eye does not see it. Only God sees it. You now what this means is as follows. We look about the um, all the prophets and talk about all the wonderful things that happened to the Jewish people. All those things are only for the days of the Messiah. The world to come, their eye couldn't see it. Even the eyes of the prophet, the great visionaries, right? The people of the great foresight, they couldn't uh, uh, they couldn't uh, encapsulate it. Like Maimonides even told us, he says that even though it's there, you can't see it. You want to know what it's like to do a lot of Well, you can't. You, just like you can't look at the sun. Right? There's no overlap between these two realities. A dramatic idea, right? That, that's one of the basic ideas of Olam That's And in some ways, if we want to know a little bit about what it's like to have a reality that's there, that is something that we cannot really understand. Well, the sun's there, right? You know the sun's there. Anyone doubts the sun's there? No, uh, no it's there, right? But you don't ever look at it. Why don't you ever look at it? Well, because you can't, But even though it's there. Well, we don't, we're blind. We can't see it, but it's still there. That's yeah, one thought. You can glimpse at the sun. Huh? You can glimpse at the okay, sun. Okay, yeah, like okay. Okay. That's why these are just small things. So mm-hmm. In a, yeah, it's a measure of the world to come, exactly. In a small way, it's similar to very good, Wendy. Additionally here, we're told, we're told, in the Talmud, in the Talmud, remember, Talmud, just Talmud are scattered everywhere. Like, we're, we're, we're putting all the pieces of the puzzle together here. We're told that the light of the sun will get diminished in the future, in the Lamaba. The sun will be less bright. Why? Why will the sun be less bright? Because... The sun, the the the, sh- the light that will shine forth from the righteous will render it insignificant. It means that when you look, in Lamabah, you see you see the righteous, the righteous will be brighter than the sun. That's the Gemara somewhere else. Now, Rabbi, what does that teach so us? Go ahead. Does everybody that has ever lived and died and is righteous are they still there in the world? To come? When Lamabah is is one of the great questions. It's a very good question. Is Moses' soul up there? 
Yeah, so most most poss- most probably not, but there's a lot of different opinions about this. So okay. so I don't want to. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good question. It's oh, a good yeah, question. because Rabbi Gogol there said are, one time that, that Lomaba doesn't exist yet. It, right, but there not, are opinions that say that say it does already. It does. Okay. Um, yeah. It's not so clear. Okay. There are opinions that say yes. There'll be millions and millions and millions of souls up there. What's the problem? No, well, there is no problem, but that mm-hmm. would be emanating it's not the by space. So. Yeah. That would be illuminate, illuminating the light, like you're saying, and that would probably be the correlation to the sun. Well, what about also if you were in a little bar there, you were in the presence of Hashem, whose light would be, the Shekinah mm-hmm. would be brighter than the sun anyway, wouldn't it? I mean. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I don't know about about how well, we're talking about the, just the righteous for, for right now. Mm-hmm. The righteous are compared to the sun. That's what the Gemara says, right? That's all the Gemara says. Now, we found some really cool things here. Who else do we know that looked like the sun? Does anyone know the sun? Who else do we know? Who or what heavenly body? Who? Who looks like the sun? There's a Gemara that says that there's someone whose face was as bright as the sun. Oh, Moses, when he came down from Sinai. Exactly. Well, and for the rest of his life. Okay, yeah, yeah. Moshe's face, the Gemara says his face was as bright as the sun. And also, we're told that Moshe, like you said, wore a mask because people couldn't look at him. Perhaps we could say, perhaps we could say that Moshe, even though he was in this physical world, but him himself, the relationship that his body had with his soul was one of the body being in total submission to the soul. Thus, Moshe was living here on planet Earth in. Like Olam Abba, in Olam Abba, like, like, like the world to come. And therefore, he, he was like one of the tzaddikim, his face shone like the sun. Now, what else do we know about Moshe that's supernatural? What? Is that a question? What else do we know about Moshe that's supernatural? Well, he, he did uh, those plagues. He was able to administrate the plagues. Okay, well, but a lot of people did. He was the greatest prophet, so he was able to communicate directly with Hashem. What does that mean? That means that there's no body there's no, intervening, right? Yeah, which is He's incredible. Like, like it's like spiritual, spiritual. It's, now, so okay, was Abraham, right? no, not at that. No, level. no one's prophecy, um, um, no one's prophecy rivaled that of Moses. Yeah, we find that Moses went up to the went, went up to the heavens for forty days and forty nights. What does he mention when Moses uh, when Moses mentions this? Uh, he says something about himself. Anyone remembers that? I read this a few weeks ago in the Parsha. I'm writing down some notes here. Anyone remembers? Well, I, he didn't eat or drink or anything, correct? I mean, he was like... He, he didn't of, eat or drink. Well, that's kind of unusual. For he didn't eat or drink. How is Moshe not, not able to yeah, eat and drink? And not die. Who else do we know that doesn't need to eat or drink? In Allahabad, there's no eating, there's no drinking. Oh, okay. Moshe here was like Allahabad, so he didn't need to eat or drink. Forty days. I mean, what human could do that? You, you can't. No, not survive. I don't think without water, at least you couldn't. You, no. you can't. Okay. Uh, to me, that was no. whoa. Moshe was living in in a state of Lamapa, even though he was in this world. And I guess I found some incredible things. Mm. I found, let's say, Moses' body and soul. Right. Normally. There's some more sources here. I don't want to get to the end here without going too far over time. Normally, the body and soul hate each other. They're opposites. 
There's a Talmud, the Midrash says that every second the soul wants to leave the body. God has to force it to stay. And then, when Moshe is about to die, there's a great Midrash that says that his soul doesn't want to leave. And the soul says, there's no better place for me in the world than to be in the body of Moshe. Moshe's body was in no way uh, um, oppressive to the soul. Or, you know, in any way, it caused absolutely no friction with the soul. Remarkable. Thus, when we say that Allah is comparable to the sun, it makes a lot of sense, a lot of different reasons, you know, either because it's incomprehensible to us or the idea of a soul is this, this exposure of, 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 uh, of or, or revealing of, 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 the, of the soul. And once you take that away, it's something that's just as dramatic as, as the tzaddikim, that's what they are. Now, what about the last thing? So, last thing is Tashmish waste removal. Um, why does it say it ambiguously? Remember the question we asked at the beginning? Let it say Tashmish Nikavim, going to the yeah. bathroom. Which one? Yeah, don't say Tashmish. Oh, I'm not telling you which one it is. Ah, oh, you want to know which one it is? Okay, well, is it this one? can't be this one. can't be intercourse because then it's, uh, it made someone wait. It must be going to the bathroom. It must be for the fact that the Gemara did not just say what it is, it must be that this is part of the lesson. The whole question of which one is it, is it this one or that one, that's part of the lesson. What does that mean? What it means is like this. It's not telling you that the pleasure of either one of these two is in any way similar to Lamaba. However, what it is telling you is that there are certain characteristics of physical pleasure that are entirely different than, 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 material, than, than spiritual pleasure. For example, here, the Rambam tells us earlier that all physical pleasures, all physical pleasures don't last forever. Right? There's, they're, they're causative. So, uh, for example, you have the ice cream, you feel the pleasure when the ice cream's there. The pleasure, ice cream's gone, pleasure's gone. That's, that's the uh, marker of physical pleasure. Spiritual pleasures last forever. Gemara says, Tashmish. Which Tashmish? Right, is it intercourse? Right? No, that makes you weak. What's it telling you? It's telling you that intercourse is a physical pleasure because <laughs> afterwards not only doesn't last forever but you get weak it has this bad aftertaste so to speak it has this letdown that comes afterwards and therefore it is descriptive of or, or, or it's, it's, it's uh, emblematic of a physical pleasure however is there any sort of pleasure we can have in this world that even after the activity is done, we still feel good? Is there anything that's like that? That it's in some small way comparable to spiritual pleasures? That's like, Amara, we found one. This one pleasure that has a little bit of a degree of lasting quality to it. That's going to the bathroom. Oh, what does that mean? Well, you feel bad before you go, and you feel better after, and that lasts. (laughs) Until... Yeah, you have to wake up every three hours and go to the bathroom. <laughs> He's talking about the other. <laughs> well, it doesn't. That doesn't make sense. Would you? Do you believe what you just? I don't said? think you guys understood. If 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 uh, 
if if it didn't make sense, it makes a lot of sense. Let's work through it again. Okay. All right. Okay. I'm not the only one, right? Everybody else is. No, no I don't understand. I don't understand. understand. You I do? Mean, yeah, because you, you do. That had, that, but that would relate to the world to come? Well, well the really idea of, of a pleasure lasting after. After the activity that brings about the pleasure is done. Okay. So I'll say it again, if, if this makes sense. Um, I believe it does. Um, and that is like this. What it's talking about is not the degree of pleasure. Mm-hmm. I think we, there's a good argument to be made that if you compare the, ple- the two Tashmishes, um, perhaps there's an argument to be made that sexual intercourse is a greater pleasure. I think that's a good argument to be made. That's not what it's talking about. Like, the Mishnah already declares that if you take one second of pleasure in Lamaba, and you take all the pleasures of this world, take a thousand years of combined human pleasure in this world, and mix, put it all together, it won't equal to one second of pleasure in Lamaba. It's not the degree or magnitude of the pleasure that we're talking about. It's the nature or the quality uh, or the mode of pleasure that we're talking about here as well. And that is like this. Physical pleasure is entirely different than spiritual pleasure. Physical pleasure right, is causative. There's the cause and there's the pleasure. Spiritual pleasure is status, right? the state of who you are. Right? If you're having the pleasure of God, if you're experiencing the pleasure of God, right, that status is what gives you the pleasure. Thus, you don't lose it. Thus, the activity that brings upon the pleasure in this world, the activity is there, the pleasure is there, the activity is gone, the pleasure is gone. In the next world, it's not about an activity that brings about the pleasure, it's about a state of being. State of being, and therefore the pleasure continues forever. Now the Gemara is saying here that there's one pleasure that we found that lasts even a little bit after the activity that brought upon the pleasure. And that's going to the bathroom, removing one's bowels. Wherein, when someone has to go to the bathroom, and then they go, and they come out of the bathroom, they feel great. Well, why, how are you feeling great? It's a physical pleasure. Well, wait a minute. Don't we know the rule of physical pleasures, that when the pleasure is there, then it's there. When it's gone, it's gone. When the activity of the pleasure is there, then it's there. When it's gone, it's gone. What's the deal? There's one pleasure that butts the trend. There's one pleasure that has some sort of shelf life past the activity that brought about the pleasure, remove one's bowels. And the Gemara even showed it to us by saying, Tashmish, well, which Tashmish? Is it this Tashmish? Well, no, it weakens you. I.e., it's illustrative of the physical pleasures that when they're there, great, and otherwise afterwards, you're, you know, you're on your own. What's the one pleasure that in some small, minute way is comparable to spiritual pleasures? Removing one's bowels. Make sense this time? I guess. <laughs> um, just a quick addendum here. I skipped a lot of things because I don't want to go over time. But there's a great line here, once again, from Maimonides, uh, where he kind of mentions that it's possible to achieve this spiritual pleasure in this world. Like we said, Moshe was able to do it. Right? There is a path to is, doing it. Is that what you call the Dvekus? That would help, yes. I would, I would call Dvekus. I think there's others. Dvekus is a word that is not in English. Uh, I would say it's possible to achieve it. How you achieve it is, is a very interesting question. an entire class in that. How you actually go about doing it. But either way, once you do it, everything else seems childish. All other pleasures pale in comparison to this pleasure. Romanus gives an example because you have a powerful king. You have a powerful king. And he has the pleasures of, of dominion, of power, of, of, of decision-making ability. 
Then someone says, hey, they're playing a game of punch bowl in the backyard. You know, all the kids are. You want to go join? There's like a, a middle deal with the most complex, sophisticated pleasures in the world. You want me to go play with the kids on the floor with a ball? He says, yes, at that time when you were unsophisticated, right, then playing, you know, with the kids with the ball, that's a, that's a pleasure that you want. Once you have experienced higher level of pleasures, well, that doesn't excite you anymore. And there is a way that we can actually in this world achieve those pleasures, uh, but by doing that, we will also uh, become greater connoisseurs of pleasure. And therefore, other pleasures would, you know, seem to be less significant, you know. Uh, you know, watching a ball game, you know, that's a nice pleasure. It's a physical pleasure, you know. If you've experienced spiritual pleasures, that's not so exciting anymore. You know, you, you've, you've upgraded your class of, of experiences, and now you want more. You, you, you know, you're not satisfied with the small childish pleasures that, uh, you know, of, of your youth. Either way, uh, I think that there's a lot of incredible lessons that we've got just from this class on its own. Uh, if Hopefully one of the lessons is that when the Talmud was written, and especially the things like the Agarita of the Talmud that seem to be very uh, obscure, very dramatic, very bizarre, what it really is is a puzzle piece. Uh, and it's, uh, it's often pu- time puzzling by design because that's the intention. The intention was to have this uh, this uh, uh, portions of Torah delivered in a way that you really have to work hard to understand it. Uh, but besides for that, if, if that's what we took away, great. If otherwise, maybe we even took away some nice insights about Olam Ba and what the role of us in this world is to try to attain and how uh, it is a reflection of our body's soul and uh, understand a little bit about what we need to do to achieve those very lofty uh, and desire some goals uh, in our lives. Okay, guys? Great this was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.